Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week is another big one. We're talking to one of the greatest producers of all time, the 11-time Grammy-winning producer, Daniel Lanois. Now, I think everyone pretty much knows Daniel is responsible for some of the greatest albums ever made, whether that's Peter Gabriel's So, or U2's Joshua Tree, or Octone Baby, or Bob Dylan's Time Out of Mind. We talk about all of those. Robbie Robertson's debut album, Luscious Jackson, Willie Nelson, Emmylou Harris. We talk about all those people in here. What you may not be as familiar with is Daniel's solo career. And he has just released last week what I think is going to be the best album of the year. It's definitely one of the best albums I've heard in many years. It's called Heavy Sun. You're listening to the latest single off of it right here. It's called Power. The reason I feel so strongly about Heavy Sun is because I think it's the perfect album for this time in our history right now. It mixes his knack for perfect, incredible, crystalline atmosphere with amazing gospel music flourishes. It's unlike anything you've heard. And I get really gushy and effusive in this interview about the album, so I'm not going to go off again here. But it is the perfect album for this moment. It is going to calm. It can calm you. It can make you less angry, it can make you less tense, and it can bring you joy and be happy to be alive. I feel that strongly about it. In fact, Daniel is very psyched about the music he's making these days, and he's already kind of on to his next projects. He plays a song in here for us that I have not been the same since I heard it. He is so full of soul and calm that I want to be more like Daniel Lanois. And if you don't come away feeling a sense of peace and a different frame of mind after this, I don't know what to tell you. Anyway, we discuss all of these things. Please check out Heavy Sun. It's out now. It's beautiful. He called me from his studio in Toronto. So first and foremost, Daniel, I want to tell you when it really, when I really dug in and began to appreciate you as a solo artist, because I remember the moment very specifically. <clears throat> In the early 2000s, I was working for Tower Records in their corporate offices uh, doing marketing. And Shine had come out around that time. And so that I had grabbed a copy of Shine. I love that. And I especially love the song Fire. That was my favorite song on that album. A, a word that's going to come up a lot, I think, in this conversation, and it gets attached to you a lot anyway, is atmosphere. But something I thought was interesting is getting ready to talk to you, I found this beautiful clip of you playing uh, fire acoustically on like a radio show or something like that. My angel, I promised her we'd be dressed in a cloud. Standing on pillars of fire, saying I found shot from truth and love, not darkness. With the moon under her feet Where birth goes on And rides terror My shine will be complete With your fire Your fire Ever so softly grows when you don't wear your armor. 
Crushing the burden and confusion sour Rambling high on every leaf Raining light down on your belief Oh my angel, unburdened by the rays All go down burning in your embrace On fire Tremolo You're my fire Fire I almost like that one better than the one I'm, I already had fallen in love with. <laughs> when you take a, a song like Fire and you uh, do you write that song and perform it like you did on this video clip of just you doing it acoustically? Are you toying with knobs and sounds and that's where these songs come from what's the story there i think uh, uh well spotted i think the version of shine on the album uh, or fire pardon me on on the album shine the vocal was overdubbed on top of something that had a lot of work put into it and the song was built in the studio and it was finished compositionally in the studio and so that's what you're hearing. And then I learned how to play it on the guitar and sing it live. And um, I wish it had gone the other way. I wish I had been playing it on the road and then we could have just recorded it in the studio in a quicker way. Yeah. But c'est la vie, sometimes, um, you know, I'm a studio rat and a lot of my compositions happen in the studio. And there's a process of uh, editing and overdubbing and trying this and that and the other thing and then we come into the song so that's what you're hearing and thanks for spotting it uh, if i could get into the time machine i would just not go in the studio at all and just go really? live <laughs> and then and then once it sounds good to an audience um i would record it <laughs> it's so funny you of all people say that because you're no you're a master of atmosphere you're the master of getting in there and finding loops and sounds and, oh, yeah. you know, wheezes that work yeah. for a song. I'm surprised that you would rather scale it back or at least maybe just that song. Well, I can add atmosphere to something that's uh, recorded uh, in a more documentary fashion. I like those kind of snapshots, you know, somebody doing something that is already formed as a song lyrically and otherwise. And then I can, the thing that you're talking about, you know, the my tendency to go to atmosphere and 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 frame something beautifully, I'd rather do that to a finished work. But uh, in the case of fire, it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I love that song. That's one of those I just put on repeat for hours. It takes me to a place. Yeah. And speaking of which, I've only had it for a couple of days, but I have I can't stop listening to Heavy Sun. And the thing, I might even get emotional because. It's hitting me so hard that I feel it is the exact album that I know I need right now. And I was reading up on kind of your motivation and your hope for the album, which is to sort of restore some, some joy and some peace in our, you know, fractured world. And yeah. that's exactly what I hear. And I was thinking, I'm so grateful that this album is out now me and my political leanings, if this had come out a few months ago, I wouldn't have been in the right place to appreciate it. But today I'm full of more hope anyway. And it is the exact album that I need right now. Thank you for making it. 
What went into this? Well, I'm, I'm glad you came up with this term, the, a fractured world. And uh, I'd never thought of the world that way, but fractured maybe means that we, it's just not what it was before. Yeah, it's divided. And, it's uh, yeah. So it's a reset button of sorts. And a lot of this record was done in a harmonious way because we are a singing group, four of us, as Rocco DeLuca, Johnny Shepard, Jim Wilson, and myself. And there's just something that happens when you sing together. You have to uh, blend and you have to think about others. And as long as I'm surrounded by the mates that I like to sing with, then I don't mind being fractured a little bit because that could be thought of as, well, leave the self-centered uh, Danny Lanois at the door and, and get in the room and blend with your mates. So harmony singing just has that in it. And perhaps listeners, well, in your case, you know, you might have felt the, the cohort and all of that, you know, the, uh, the, the blend the uh, the consideration to others and yes. certainly uh, that's the way we sang we sang all four parts together and and we didn't move on until it sounded right so those little adjustments of of harmonies and maybe somebody sw swapping apart with somebody else and who's going to take the high one because Rocco sings really high as Johnny does so sometimes we'd switch them around to see who sounded best in a in a fixed position yeah, but uh, if we can add a little bit of of uh, joy to fractured, then uh, job well done. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> I I can't stop. It's um, <laughs> it relieves me of a lot of my anxiety. I put on, you know, I put on dance on, and I suddenly feel better. You know. If you feel like you wanna dance. Dance on, dance on, dance on, yeah. dance on. If you feel like you wanna sing, singing may be your thing. Sing on, sing on, sing on, yeah. sing on. And if you feel Something to shout about Shout on Shout on Oh, oh, oh yeah Shout on And if you feel like you want to love And I was thinking about, in listening to it, I mean, I think most people have heard, you know, that fantastic interview you did with Mark Maron, so I don't want you to have to repeat yourself, but you talk a lot in there about your the foundation of your work being when you were working with gospel music back in the early days. And that yeah. comes out, I've, I love gospel music, and that comes out in this so well. When the four of you guys get together, is it preconceived we're going to make something, we're going to mix some gospel with some atmosphere? Do you just see what happens? Are you in such a good mood that you think, I want to let it shine? What, what's the where's what's the philosophy? Oh, I don't know if I'm ever in that good a mood, but uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> with my friends, uh, yeah. um, we, we uh, you don't have a there's no choice you know if you're with your buddies you don't want to let people down and in the same way that any team you know uh, 
if you drop the ball and one of your mates will pick it up and maybe th that three-pointer gets made and off you go and that provides encouragement for the next move. We really had that feeling in the studio that uh, uh, it, it was a collaboration and in regards to the songwriting itself you know we we just sat around and, thought, and, and talked about life and different members philosophical stances you know Johnny Shepard is from Shreveport Louisiana so he relocated to to be involved in this body of work and we appreciated that he had the uh, the courage to get up and go and and leave town and come to Los Angeles and so it, and he, he, he comes from the Zion Baptist Church in Shreveport, Louisiana. So he's a church man and had never sung outside of church all that much. And so we, we appreciated that Johnny uh, did that for us. Yeah. And we said, Johnny, what did it feel like? He says, well, I had to leave church behind, but uh, I feel that I'm carrying church inside me now. Yes. And then we came up with the idea, you know, the slogan, uh, Church with No Walls. And Rocco had a, a title called Tumbling Stone. And we, we decided that Tumbling Stone should be about what a modern traveling minstrel should be. a bit of faith and, and, and to spread the gospel as as we did in the in this record the best we could uh we we are not you know pointing uh, we're not stepping into christianity particularly but we are the sentiment and the feeling and the congregational spirit of gospel music is in this record yeah that's it it's a sensitivity for finding positivity or joy or uplift from some other higher source higher power at a time like now when we need it most mm. i think my favorite song on the album is every nation come, come every nation. 
And I was curious what the story behind that song is. I mean, it talks about somebody, I don't know if it's you, coming from Nova Scotia to Toronto, I assume, to find a better life. I mean, is that your personal story? It's a story that I had in my head for a long time about uh, a native fellow who comes to Toronto to find work and doesn't find work and feels displaced, but remembers how the, uh, the forgotten voices had always spoken to him, you know, that could be the form of the elders or uh, some kind of a force that had come before. That song started as a church song. It's an old classic called uh, Fare You Well. We sang Fare you well, Fare you well a few times live because Johnny knew the song and it's kind of it's that call and response. Uh, don't, 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 Fare you well, Fare you well. It's a real, it's a good hand clap church song, you know, it gets everybody moving. But we abandoned that, and we kept the uh, the spirit of Fare You Well going by tempo and uh, somewhat by sentiment. Uh, but that's one of the ones that I finished in Toronto myself because I sing the lead in that one, and I touched up the, uh, the song approach in Toronto once I left Los Angeles. And I wanted to incorporate the uh, injustices that were happening um, in Nova Scotia at the time, you know, the, the native fishing rights were being threatened. And uh, I thought it was a shout out to my native compadres and as if these people have not suffered enough already. So I thought, well, let it be that I'll, I'll try and mix that story in with it. And the background vocals had already been sung. So I, I kept the ones that made the most sense lyrically to, as a companion to uh, this new, this new uh, native approach. So, yeah. Shout out to my neighbor compadres. <laughs> it's such a magical quartet of people that you you and the other three working together on this album. I'm I'm curious. You mentioned about Johnny. That guy can sing, and he. I mean, I obviously wasn't as familiar with him, but um, where did you find him? How did you get in contact with Johnny to bring him on? I play in the band called Hallelujah Train now and again as a guest guitar player. And that's um, uh, Pastor Brady Blade Sr. Uh, it's his his church and his band, and his son Brian Blade is my old friend, one of the one of the great drummer, one of the great American drummers. And so I met Johnny. He was the church organist, choir leader, and we call him our hymnologist. And his term had come to an end at the church, and I invited him to join us. Uh, and I felt, and Rocco and I always wanted to be in a singing group together. So we thought, well, the, the meeting of Johnny and him accepting the invitation was the use. We took it as a sign that the time was now. Nice. I'm, um, I'm curious about Rocco because I mentioned that time in the early 2000s when 
the Shine album came out while I was at Tower. That's when his first solo album came out too. And it was, a, you know, it was in the office. We ha I had it. And um, suddenly from there, I know that Jude Cole, I believe, works with him or manages him. Kiefer Sutherland's involved in there somewhere. What, where did Rocco, how did Rocco, this guy that I'd never heard of prior to about 18, 19 years ago, enter the world of people like you? What did you see in him that you wanted to be a part of? I heard Rocco sing at um, a little club around the corner from my studio in Los Angeles, a little club called Spaceland. I thought he had the most beautiful voice and, and something about him resonated as a pure form. And I just got to be friendly with him and we started doing shows together and I've helped him out along the way best I could, you know, provided him with some work and we've done some soundtrack work together. This is not the first record we've worked on together. I, I helped him on his second album called Mercy and some other steel guitar work in between. But I just, I just felt that he had something in his voice that really touched me. And I thought one day, you know, we'll, one day we'll sing together. Yeah, yeah. This is that time. I'm so glad you guys found each other. I, one of the things, going back to atmosphere, when I, okay, let me see if I can even make sense of this question. When I listen to you, especially like the Robbie Robertson album, which is probably my favorite thing you produce, and especially specifically the Somewhere Down the Crazy River track, Distant red neon shivered in the heat. I was feeling like a stranger in a strange land. You know, where people play games with the night. God, it was too hot to sleep. I followed the sound of a jukebox coming from up the levee. All of a sudden, I could hear somebody whistling from right behind me. I turned around and she said, always end up down at Nick's Cafe. I said, uh, I don't know. The wind just kind of pushed me this way. She said, hang the rich. I was 14 when that came out. I'd never been to New Orleans, but I felt like I was listening to, smelling, experiencing New Orleans in that song. Yeah. Oh, what's funny about that is I'm wearing a T-shirt right now that says Nick's Cafe that's on right. it. And, and Nick's, uh, <laughs> and the, that's uh, right. And that's, uh, that comes up in somewhere down the crazy river. Yes, why it does. Always, why do we always find you hanging out at Nick's Cafe? I think it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Yes. So it's funny because the song doesn't even overtly say New Orleans, but I yet I felt it as a kid, listen, teenager listening yeah. to this. Now, I know you had a studio there for a long time, and I know obviously you're French Canadian, but in Toronto or Hamilton, where you grew up, is there a tradition of similar? 
I don't know. It's like spirituality mixed with a little voodoo and witchcraft or something. Well, if you squint a little bit, Lake Ontario or the <laughs> the Hamilton Bay turns into the Mississippi River. And if you got a bit of imagination when you're hanging out by, down by the railway tracks at five in the morning, as I used to, I used to squint and think, it's just like the Mississippi. <laughs> 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 no, it's as far it's as far away from it as as you can That's get. It's a, it's a steel town. It's a dirty old place, but we loved it. But Robbie Robertson, get back to Robbie, he grew up around. Um, same neck of the woods, just outside Hamilton, and so we we share we share that in common uh, geographically. But uh, like Robbie, I was always interested in the records that I loved listening to as a kid. You know, and a lot of them came from the South. And uh, Robbie's a generation ahead of me, so he'd gone down and investigated, you know, the music that he loved out of Arkansas, and that's how he met Levon Helm. And so we, uh, I think we shared an appetite uh, for uh, uh, the origin of some of the music that we grew up with. Um, when I did make it south, uh, it was all true. The neighbor, the, the neighborhoods, the music was coming out of the neighborhoods. There was always a great horn player down the street. Every little club had a good drummer. And there was a kind of standard that that, that city had gotten to with musicianship that I was very impressed by. So I see it as a continuation of uh, my education to go south. I'd recommend it to anyone from the <laughs> north. <laughs> was that now you had a studio down there for like 15 years or something, right? But I don't think it uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't believe that it was in operation when you were doing the Robbie Robertson album. I think it came after. Do I have that right? Yes, I recorded Robbie in 86 in Los Angeles, and the studio that you're speaking of uh, was in the French Quarter of New Orleans, and that came after. That's correct, yes. So, uh, okay. But, uh, but you know, uh, back to Robbie and somewhere down the crazy river for a minute. Robbie's a great storyteller, and I, uh, I gifted him with this little toy instrument called the Suzuki Omnichord, and it had all these exotic little kind of like an electronic auto harp had some exotic chords on it he was he was quite amused by it and uh he found a chord sequence that he liked and a little drum beat and then i said robbie what was it like when you first went south what was it like when you're hanging around arkansas and he started telling some stories and i recorded some of those stories and that served as a demonstration for where the song could go. You know, because it's got that beautiful low voice. So it was very, yes. and over, over top of that steamy little chord sequence. And that was the seed of somewhere down the crazy river. Oh, <laughs> magic. And it's, uh, I mean, you know, this, it's such an odd song and yet it burrows in your blood, unlike anything else, because it's spoken word for the most part, except for the verses, but it just creates a tone and a vibe that's unlike anything else. Like I said, you can smell that song. You feel like you feel the sweat, you know, coming down mm -hmm. from you when you listen to that song and that whole album. I, I think it's magical. Mm -hmm. Well, the uh, Robbie paid me a lovely compliment once. He's, uh, I think in an interview, he said, yeah, that land has got good imagination. And I, you know, I might have egged them along a little bit in in the yeah. Department of Imagination, and that's what great records should be about. They should be good. imaginative and special, yes. at whatever they're doing. <laughs> good, good. Do you mind if I throw a few others at you? Things that I've just been curious about. I don't want you to have to tell stories you've told a million times. Hopefully, they're 
little nuggets though. No, no, go right ahead, man. I'll, okay. As I said, as I said to you before we got on the air here, I'm whatever's best for the house. Okay. Uh, we have some Patreon supporters and a couple of them sent over some questions for you. Um, one of them in particular was, do you view projects like Robbie or Bob Dylan or Emmy Lou Harris as sort of relaunch projects are people is this a situation much like somebody would go to rick rubin and say sort of i want you to reinvent me i want you to take what i do and put it in a new light or is yeah. it more collaborative than that what are the ins what's the inspiration for these well i don't remember anyone ever talking about reinvention people want to make their best work you know, if we were lucky enough to meet and, and everything seems to have fallen into place, then we have a responsibility to do the best work we can. And uh, it always uh, starts with philosophical exchange and, and, and wanting to know what's going on in people's hearts and heads. And off we go. You know, it's I wish I could tell you that there was some great strategy at play. Uh, uh, I was just really pleased to get an invitation from these folks and and i got in there and rolled up the sleeves and and made the best record that i could with them i turn i i choose to shut a lot of, a lot of that out you know like a, what people have done in the past obviously you know I, I was aware of of the good work that all of the artists you just mentioned had done before and i wasn't really interested in revisiting what they had done or to try and pull them in or out of anything. You know, I just wanted to make sure that we made the best work we could with what we had at hand. So uh, that's it, man. I, um, okay. <clears throat> okay. I love, um, I learned again on going back to the Marin interview about your teatro, um, which I, you know, I, I love that Willie Nelson album. I didn't realize were you, was it a situation of you just driving along the road, seeing an old abandoned movie theater and thinking, sure, let's, uh, let's, let's set up shop there. I've always liked theaters and uh, I went to the cinema a lot as a kid and I saw that place. Uh, I was driving along with a buddy. We were listening to some records and uh, I, I thought, oh, that's a cool looking theater and it's closed down. And then, oh, there's a four lease sign on it. So that's how it started. It was that innocent. Yeah. For those who don't know, it's in Oxnard, which is about an hour north of L.A. It was a sleepy town at that time. A little, it's an agricultural area. So the town had a lot of you know, agricultural workers, you know, weaving and out of the place. A great restaurant called Cielito Lindo, you know, Gordon's Western Ware down the street. And then most importantly... Uh, Army Navy surplus, and that's where we got all of our of our. Uh, we've got some parachutes to uh, deaden the place down, and we, you know, we 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 got our denims from Gordon's Western Wear, and we got all the stuffings from uh, the Army surplus. Yeah, <laughs> it was, no it, was a, it was an it's amazing great. time. A beautiful, beautiful, a very very inspiring place, because uh, everything was still in there. The screen was in there. The projector booth was intact. It had a little bit in it that uh, it felt like stolen time, you know, like a place we shouldn't be in and, and as if time had stood still sometime, somehow from, from way back in the day. All the Mexican movie posters were still in there. Uh, it was just a lot of fun. And that's where we started Bob Dylan's Time Out of Mind records. And I think Bob really appreciated that uh, it was such an isolated uh, idea that uh, he found yeah. some fun in it for himself. Yeah. Good. Um, that Willie album, my favorite track on that is Blue Motel. 
What used to be my home has changed to just a place to stay. A crumbling last resort when day is through. Sometimes between sundown and dawn, somehow I find my way to this home hotel on Lost Love Avenue. No one seems to really care if I come here at all. One who seems to care the least is you. I'm gonna hang a neon sign with letters big and blue. Home hotel on Lost Love Avenue. It's just basically him and a piano. It's gorgeous. And there's the right amount of reverb on his vocals. And I was wondering, listening to that, thinking, again, this is a, a question about where these songs come from. When you and Willie are working on a song like that, is it does it start out as something much bigger and eventually get layers taken away until you realize the essence is all we need? Hmm. Where does a song like that come from? Well, um, it's a lonely song my subject and uh it's um home motel by the way uh what did i, I say like blue. you said blue oh, motel, I said blue? but I, I like blue motel as well <laughs> home, <laughs> motel. <laughs> Whoops. home motel yes that's okay man and yeah. uh we were lucky enough to have uh, brad meldow in on that session as a one of our great piano players out there i thought for brad to lend his gift to Willie and that song might really be something special. So I just started to pursue that and it worked out very well because Brad is is a storyteller himself in his own, in his fingers, you know, his piano playing. And so the, uh, I thought surely this man would be able to add a compliment to a beautiful, sad song like Home Motel. So I, I'm, thanks for noticing it. And uh, we managed to hit a magic place with it. You did, and it's the uh, it's the simplicity and the subtlety of it that makes it so powerful. You, I mean, you know this. Some things you can you can doctor up with all kinds of noise and effects for effect, or you can just leave it what it is. And that song is an example to me of just letting it be uh, its bare bones, and that's all the power you need right there. Yeah, know? well, I, I couldn't say it better myself. You know, the some things are are. Um are most potent in a magnified private way. Um, and that's one of them. Home that's it, home. yeah. Okay, and then also asking about Emmy Lou.
I, I don't remember the timeline of which came first, but did one kind of influence the other? Did a country artist say to another country artist, you should go to the Teatro and work with Daniel. We're onto something there. You'll like it. <laughs> I think I had already done the uh, Emmy Lou Harris Wrecking Ball record uh, when, when I took on the work with Willie. Okay. But but uh, Emmy Lou has a, a long history with, with Willie. She sung with him a lot prior to my coming into their lives. So I didn't have to twist too many arms. Willie loved the idea of Emmy coming on board because not only is she a great singer, but she can really follow Willie because his phrasing is is uh, unpredictable. So and and Emmy's got that that gift where she just watches Willie and she can just follow his every move. Uh, and she's a natural uh, in terms of uh, part singing. So the harmonies come to her naturally. And so I think the experiences she had had with Willie before. Um, you know, just added to the uh, the potency of, of that of that get together in the teatro, and we were on a roll at that time. You know, we yeah. made a, a good record with Emmy Lou, and and so the which brings up an interesting subject matter that of a block of time that you might call only by looking back do you realize that something a block of time might be uh, there was a scene happening yes. at that time. We've always been pretty good at uh, rolling the dice on a situation like a teatro or the studio in New Orleans that you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, we went to Mexico and had a studio down there. So there was no logic to taking those places on initially. We didn't have a grand plan, but we rolled the dice on a location. And then uh, that's how it happens. You know, you, you start something and it's fresh and it's exciting and people come and uh, hopefully a body of work comes out of that. So I think the um, the Teatro, the Emmylou Harris record, and for that matter, the Sling Blade soundtrack that all happened during that Teatro time. I like those blocks, those chapters of yeah. work. You know, the, uh, and you know, the, uh, there's a similar chapter that way when I made ambient records with my good friend, Brian Eno, 
that happened uh, in Canada, in Hamilton, at the, mm -hmm. the Canadian Mississippi, Hamilton. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it will forever be known. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, a great body of work came out of, a, you know, about a three-year block of time. And then the, you know, the Heavy Sun record was done in L.A. And, yeah. you know, there was some, some other good work happened uh, down there. You know, you can think of, you know, it's I made a, a Neil Young record down there. And, and uh, I made a quite a good record with Rocco DeLuca. Goodbye to Language, which is our steel guitar yeah. record. Was done That's the there. Yeah, I've got that one, too. And uh, and so the there was a good a good amount of work came out of that location that Silver Lake studio and I feel that that may never happen again in that location yeah. and there's a, there's kind of a freshness and a we're all kind of wide eyed for a while about a certain situation and a group of people we're working with and now we're going to move on to another another block of work I'm here in Toronto yeah. I've invented this term called the Maker Series yeah and so the uh, that's it. I'm anticipating a couple, three, four years of enthusiasm for a certain kind of approach. Good. Uh, I'm doing um, the Heavy Sun record has taken me to piano composition because I did a little bit of piano playing. In fact, there's a track called uh, The Tree of Thule. On the I love that song.
kind of the spirit that drives a record and and you know the uh, you know the sort of the gospel nature of you know that this record has in it i was on a road trip in mexico mm-hmm. from mexico city to oaxaca and i came upon this little town called tule mm-hmm. and i pulled over it was very pretty and i saw a giant tree called the tree of tule and <laughs> there were people under it and they were praying they weren't praying to the tree or worshiping the tree there was a place of worship and i was really touched by these folks going to that location in modern times and fast times that this place had the capacity to slow everybody down and i wanted to write something about about that place that they had gotten to and uh and that's how the tree of tule came to be and so uh, i played the lead the lead piano part on that has a little bit of a cuban feeling and um now i'm playing a little more piano do you want me to play some for you no please okay (laughs) please let me go uh let me go to that piano now and uh can you see the piano? yes okay good Uh, i'll give the mic wait a second That choked me up. That was so beautiful. I can feel my heart rate lowering. And uh, I just, it goes, it, you said it best a second ago about just slowing life down for a minute yeah. <laughs> and taking a second to, you know, take in some beauty. Mm-hmm. That was incredible. What was that? 
Well, that's uh, a little based on a little provisional title, uh, Cascade. It's called. Uh -huh. so it's it's a, an original piece of music. And we, uh, when we get finished talking, Wayne and I are going to get back to uh, making yeah. this this piano record. Oh, it's gorgeous. My friend Margaret Maryson, she likes the touch that I have on the piano, so she's been encouraging me to make a record of piano. And I'm using it as an excuse to get on with this next body of work <laughs> and uh, uh, under the uh, the Maker series. Yeah. Um, so we hope something nice comes of it. We've been enjoying Toronto right now. Um, I'm in this old Buddhist temple here that I purchased oh. from the monks when they were leaving town. and we set up shop here so it's it's got a lot of spirit in it you know that i yes. found this old this old steinway upright piano i think i've been on a fire once but it, but we got it sounding pretty good yeah i noticed that so for anyone who can't see us obviously it's an upright steinway and it's you know the there's no front on it you can see all the pedals and all the hammers hitting all the yeah you you save that from a fire because i, I can't imagine the song you just played on any other instrument but the one you just used well, it, now it causes me to think about spinning a bit of yarn. Yes, I ran in because I had a friend down <laughs> in the fire department. And I said, you look after the children and I'll rescue the Steinway. And that's how it happened. <laughs> okay. Maybe I could have used different words. <laughs> so no, it's fine. What's happening is we, uh, when dampened the bottom end down, so I don't know if you can see, we got some tea towels between the hammers and the strings yeah. for the bass, so you get a little more of that muted sound. So yes. that's sort of a our trick of the trade here. Oh. <laughs> so the Maker series is going to be what? How many are going to make up the series? Well, what is I'm, it? Thinking, I'm thinking it's probably going to be four albums. Uh, what's happened in, in modern times, somehow or other, the campaigns to put a record out it takes longer to put them together. And I want to revisit what uh, Mick Jagger told me it was like. I said, Mick, what was it like when you guys got started? He says, well, we'd, we'd finish a song on Friday and be on the radio by Monday. I said, how did you ever pull that off? Here we are in fast times. It takes six months to put a campaign yeah. together. So if we're lucky enough to have something fresh out of the oven that's got some feel and, and some something special about it, I'd like to put it out quickly. So I've been uh, Chinwagon with the, the folks down at the label saying, well, why don't we put out these compilations under the Maker series? And if we get a track that comes out that's really special, we'll just release it with the view of then at the end of 10 months, we have enough material to put out that first compilation. So yeah. it's a, it, it has spontaneity in it and it has a little bit of pressure in it that we got to deliver that compilation by a certain date. So uh, we like pressure. Yeah. Deadlines are good. Uh, but we don't like to finish something and then sit around for, like I'm talking to you about the Heavy Sun record now, but um, that's a while back now that, that we finished that. And so uh, I'd rather talk into you, be talking to you about it, you know, the, the day that I finished it yeah. rather than six months later. Yeah. So yeah. anyhow, okay. it's just, a, it's just, a, a, there it is. It's a little bit of a dream come true. Yeah. I'm curious, you talking about all of these different studios, and um, I don't know if you, for instance, own the Teatro at the same time as you own the New Orleans one, or you have access to the LA. I was surprised to hear Heavy Sun was done in LA. I assumed it was back up in Toronto. Do you seek out, like when you hear, I don't know, Luscious Jackson, do you think Luscious Jackson makes sense for the New Orleans studio?
shake things off to clear my head to say the things I haven't said. Live inside the elements, the earth and sky are my best friends. Water is the evidence that washes me from end to end. sense for the Toronto student you know what I mean like when you, the maker series do you think that would sound great in the old Buddhist temple that's where this needs to be recorded. Mm. well to Lusha Jackson for a minute Lusha Jackson made sense on 14th Street in New York City mm -hmm. it sure does they yeah were in, in their rehearsal hall I visited them at their rehearsal place and they sounded really good it was just you know, quite a compact little room. I said, well, let's not bother moving all the stuff. I'll bring some equipment in. And so we started that record in that very place. And there's something smart. I learned that from Brian Eno when he worked with the Tonkin Heads that he he decided to bring a truck in to park it in the alley and record them in their rehearsal room because it was already set up. They're already sounding good. They were on a creative flow. So it was the same thing with Lusha Jackson. I mean, ultimately, they came to visit me in New Orleans, and we did a little bit of a stint at the Teatro, but that's a New York record, really. And the way I'm seeing the uh, the Maker series right now is, uh, well, we're here in Toronto, and we like it here right now. We're getting on with some good work. Uh, we have restrictions because of the pandemic, but we're not going to slow down the work, so I'm not going to say, oh, man, we can we should be recording in LA. No, let's work work in Toronto right now. But I uh, I did have the Teatro at the same time as New Orleans. Uh, there was an overlap there. Oh, go ahead. Usually what's best for the flow of the music, you know? So at the moment, my pianos are sounding nice here in, in Toronto. Yeah. So we'll just get on with some good work here. We're very excited about what we're doing. And that's what's most important. If uh, uh, we don't want to get stale or, or think that we should be in some other studio somewhere else. I never really think that way. Wherever we are is where we work. Great. Is the Maker Series going to be you and Wayne? We should say Wayne Lawrence is your sort of partner yeah. there with you. Yeah, Wayne Lawrence is my co-producer these days. He runs my studios. Wouldn't be the same without him. So uh, we've got a real good thing going. We found some exciting uh, approaches to record making that I never knew about before. You're still got, learning things? Wow. Yeah, man. We found a way to work with drums that uh, uh, through the heavy making of the Heavy Sun record, you know, we found a way to uh, transport drums around that as long as the track was metronomically driven, uh -huh. we found a way to sample our own drums, if you must use that term, 
and move them around to build an arrangement because oftentimes we would build an arrangement in the studio to, for the song to be written on top of. So mm -hmm. getting back to what you asked about earlier on fire, we, we're still, we're still operating that way. You know, we still mm -hmm. build tracks uh, from magic moments that we have. If we've got some magic drumming while well, we start with that and then maybe a riff. And, and so we form a backing track based on the successes that we get to. And quite a bit of the Heavy Sun record was done that way, you know. Some of the organ tracks, you know, like there's there's a track called Mother's Eyes, for example, yeah. that's predominantly driven by the organ. And... Johnny was just jamming in the hallway on the on the Hammond B3. And uh, later that night, Wayne and I went through all of it and chose our favorite moments. And we cut an arrangement together that the song was then written on top of. Mm. We're still excited about that technique. Uh, we also have a, a dubbing technique that I use where I extract, I take a little sample of an already existing ingredient in, in, in the multi-track pull it out, do some work on it with Wayne, and then we put it back in at the relevant harmonic moments. Um, it's it's something that hip hop people are very familiar with, you know, yeah. take, you take a, a sample that really seems to resonate with you and off you go, you know, you place it in the right position. So it's it's up that street a little bit. Okay. Uh, as even in, in our rootsiest moments, you know, we will use this kind of technological angle, uh, but it's hard for people to, it's not blatantly uh, that way and heard that way in the end. It's just a, it's just a, a technique that we use just to enhance uh, and often enhance in an orchestral way, you know, there'd be yeah. some little atmosphere that comes out of nowhere and it sounds like nice. a voice, it sounds like a violin, I'm not sure what the source yeah. is. Well, those are the dubs that we use. We apply a little bit of voltage control oscillation to them sometimes or a little repeat Jamaican echo and then that's it. It becomes uh, the house orchestra. Got it. Okay. Um, okay. You, you mentioning these little flourishes that you sort of discover. I wanted to ask you specifically about three or four from your history, if you don't mind. One of them going back to somewhere down the crazy river, um, Sonny Bodine, his voice singing somewhere down the crazy river sounds to me like it's been shot from... 1930s old radio on my grandma's in my grandma's kitchen or something like that where did that little accent come from well 
Sammy just sings that way. You know, we didn't have to do anything. It was not a, it was not a trick, a technological trick. Somewhere down the crazy river. It's yes. just got that penetrating, that beautiful penetrating voice, you know. Yes. I lost yes. track with those guys and I hope they're doing well. But uh, yeah. it was very sweet of him to come in as a character. And Robbie yeah. always appreciated uh, characters in his life, you know, because always, Robbie always had a fascination with the circus and as the, you know, as, the leader of the band he appreciated that he had characters in his immediate band that he could draw draw upon you know to give them a role to play first maybe sing a certain verse so the coming of sammy i think it was just a continuation of what robbie is interested in you know having characters Fascinating. in his art oh it's perfect it's a perfect accent okay this is a super nerdy question this is um relating to you two with or without you, Joshua Tree comes out with or without you, you know, takes, that's when I became more of a YouTube fan. And I've always wondered, this goes back to sort of what your relationship with Eno and what, I'm never sure whether your ingredients or your accents to music, one is very much yours and one is very much his, or if they're both of you. So with or without you, there's that high pitched synth line kind of going through a lot of it. It reminds me of something Eno might have done on one of his ambient, you know, techno records or te not techno, mm -hmm. but you know what I mean. Where did that little accent come from? Is is you two saying we have an idea and we want to place this really high pitched, you know, synth tweaking sound at the top, or is that one of you guys? That sound was invented by Michael Brook. It didn't come from any one of us. Okay. <laughs> Michael is a, a friend of mine from Toronto, and he was my roommate in London, England, and he invented this guitar called the Infinite Sustain because he was thinking of picking up an Ebo. Uh, an Ebo is, is a, this little gadget that, for those who don't know, that 
you just hold it rather than strumming the guitar, you hold the ebo over a string and it does starts resonating almost like a like a shaving razor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he couldn't find one, so he invented this this idea, the system where the pickup became a speaker. So the back pickup was a speaker and it spoke to the string and made it resonate in the front pickup, fed it back to the back pickup and so on. And so, and it had that sound and he, he, he sent one to, to the studio and Edge picked it up and he started playing this. Yes. Little, <laughs> little yes. sound. So uh, that was Michael. He invented this thing. Wow. And uh, Edge was just trying it out to see yeah. uh, what it, what kind of sounds it would produce. And we had the track up, the With or Without You track. And I said, Edge, just throw on the cans and let's let's lay down a, a you know, just do a pass if that sound seems to be working. And Edge, would you do a second pass? And he did a second pass, and that was it. That's that, no way. <laughs> that innocent. Yeah. So yeah, that was. Uh, it's just an instrument. Every U two record has had a little technological invention you know a little a little surprise came our way and uh, uh, michael's infinite sustain would be a point of reference and then okay. you know there's a few other things you know that bow wow that sound that edge came up with that was with just some piece of processing equipment that somebody really? sent him to try and you know he just bumped into it and off we yeah. went and I could tell you that was uh, it was not no. dreamt of or anything. We just if, if we're lucky enough to have something cool that comes our way, then we like to think we're smart enough to say that's cool. Let's put it on the record. <laughs> that's what I want to know. Okay, so another one of our Patreon supporters asked a similar question about <laughs> the bass playing on Wire on um, Unforgettable Fire. It,
so bouncy and you know liquidy and everything and i'm and a similar question how does who come is that adam playing a certain way is that you putting an effect on his playing do you come at this together where does that come from adam is bouncy yeah yeah so you get a bouncy <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's, he's a great bass player we always think of him at the time we always joked that we thought of him as the jazz man of the band and so i think that's just one of his borrowed inventions you know you never know what's going to come out of adam so i'd have to hear the part again to be okay. very specific with you okay. but uh, that's fine um but he's just got um he can have it in the studio he can go to that place where he gets a really gnarly sound beautiful gnarly sound which is you know that early svt svt is a is a bass app that has that kind of you know it's got a real aggressive rock sound and uh, even though Adam went to a more round sound uh, on later records, he always had the uh, that growl in him from the early days. It comes That's out it. every now and again. That's it. That's it. It's the growl. <laughs> yep. Um, okay. Another one. I, you've talked about Sledgehammer and So to Death, so I don't want you to go too deep. But I was curious at the beginning of the, the sort of flute sound at the beginning of Sledgehammer, whose idea was that? done and someone said you know what would be really cool is to put a little you know flute on here no it's the same situation it's like the infinite sustain the michael brooks story is we had just gotten this emulator sent to us uh emulator being a, a keyboard it was a, a new keyboard at the time and uh, it was a stock sound in the emulator mm -hmm. <laughs> we were just kind of going through sounds and peter started playing this the it's it's kind of a little acarina, like a little Clint Eastwood sound that they put yeah. in the emulator, almost as a gag. And Peter played this little um, musical figure, a little triad, and it it made that sound. And and everybody thought, well, let's put that on the front of Sledgehammer, you know. It's Love just, it. Just, we were lucky enough to have it come our way. It was a new instrument, and we were one of the first to uh, to use that sound. So. Uh, I'm, glad okay. we, I'm glad we put the record out before, with that sound before somebody else did it. Yeah, right. <laughs> One of my very favorite musicians is Manu Kache. I hope I'm saying that right. I've never yes, said his that, name. I, 
Okay. That's correct. Yes. Manu Kache. Yeah. And you guys have had a partnership working together on all kinds of things. And he's one of the, I can hear him. There's not a lot of musicians, especially drummers where you know them when you hear them, but I know Manu when I hear him. How did you two form a relationship? A mutual friend by the name of uh, George Aconier. He stopped into the studio in England because uh, he was a, an, an already existing friend of Peter's. And we were looking for a drummer who had a good hi-hat feel because uh, we, were, we were getting ready to overdub drums because the whole record had been done to a beatbox. And I, because I, the, the beat for Sledgehammer was pretty, uh, you know, boom, 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 boom. It was, it was not particularly uh, funky or anything, you know, it was, it was more of a, a point of, of a metronomic point for us. So we, we could keep time. And uh, George says, when I asked him, do you know a drummer who can really got, got a nice shuffle on the hi-hat? Because I wanted to have, on this record, although Peter didn't have much hi-hat on records prior to my involvement, I said to Peter, it might be nice to just get the hi-hat going. Now, something like that. And George says, I know a guy in Paris who's got that kind of feel. And we just rolled the dice on uh, on Manu Kache. We didn't know anything about him. And he came in and I said, Manu, can you play? He says, okay. He went in and he did it in one take. Oh, wow. Wow. What a guy. Yeah, and, whenever uh, I, oh, go ahead. Well, I, it, it needs to be said that Manu has a really great foot, mm. um, bass drum feel. So, um, he lays he lays down the the bottom end really well, mm -hmm. and he just uh, he uses a tiny crash cymbal, which is kind of his signature. You know, you know, just a little, almost it gets out of the way quickly. Peter doesn't I, like cymbals much, so that's I right. I remember that baby cymbal. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, whether it's a Sting album or like immediately into Fallen Angel on the Robbie Robertson album, you can hear Manu coming in first. And the river was overflowing 
and uh, I just always know him and welcome his sound when I hear it. Um, okay, last question, because I know we're about out of time. You, um, something I always like to ask producers specifically is if there was somebody that they didn't work with, not just that you would like to work with, but that you thought to yourself when listening to them, I think I could really add something to this. If I could get with whoever, I think we could really come up with something special. Is there somebody like that? I said that very thing to Elliot Roberts once. Huh. Elliot, Elliot um, is not with us anymore, but managed Neil Young through his entire career. I said, as a Canadian kid, I always wanted to work with Neil Young. And uh, two days later, I got a call from Neil, and it happened. So, um, any uh, we made a great record called "The Noise." Yep. Full of heart, full of spirit, and we really—I uh, I feel that we really hit on something. And it was nice to be in the studio with a Canadian friend. I bet. And I, I always, you know, I'd met Neil over the years here and there, but we had never worked together. And when we did, I felt the humor was already intact. Uh, that we had come from the same neck of the woods was comforting to us, and I think he respected that I. Uh, really wanted the best for him yeah. uh, but anything beyond that uh, beyond Neil I would say that part of me wishes I had been born a little bit earlier because I could have been part of that great wave of records that came out of the 50s and the 60s uh, but I came into record making later than that when experimentation was a big part of my thing and yeah. still is now yeah. but uh, to make fast records like Little Richard records or yeah. Um, you know, Soulsters, uh, you know, that era that would have been nice yeah. to have been yeah. there for that, but I don't have any regrets, man. It's Good. okay. <laughs> Good. Actually, I should ask one Bob Dylan question, um, just in case. So, time out of mind, my understanding first of all, that's my favorite Bob Dylan album, and I'm sure it's largely because of you. In the 
the heat rising in my eyes Every day your memory goes dimmer It doesn't haunt me like it did before I've been walking through the middle of nowhere Trying to get to heaven before they close the door Um, and because of that, I went out and bought Love and Theft the day it came out. And it sounded so different because it didn't have your magic on it. And I hope this isn't too personal of a question. My understanding is that Bob was sort of disappointed with Time Out of Mind, or was it not what he had in mind? Why did he revert back to producing himself after that? Well, we'd have to ask Bob that, but I'm, I'm not aware of any disappointment. You know, oh, okay, we, good. We stood on the stage at the Grammy Awards and accepted True. the award for the album of the year. So yeah. Any, yeah. Kind of any kind of doubt would, you know, went out the window and we just went backstage and had a drink with Tony Bennett and we had a great time and good. everybody agreed that they were not only music artists, but they were all painters as well. So we talked yeah. about painting. Awesome. <laughs> well, Daniel, I um, not only do I love everything you've done but i am grateful for it i'm grateful because it as you probably know make people's makes people's lives better and it becomes a part of what is beautiful about being alive and heavy sun is something that is making me happy to be alive right now yeah. because it's making the world feel like a better place yeah. and so i'm so grateful for what you've put into the world because it's making it's a force for good and not everyone can say that about having such a sustained career of being a force for good but you can and i'm grateful for you well thank you for such a compliment i mean i don't know how to respond to that and maybe i should just leave well enough alone you don't have to say anything uh, i just wanted to get i wanted to tell you okay. how much it matters thank you very much you bet there you have it daniel lenoir Tell me that the molecules in your body aren't different after listening to him play that song on the piano. I don't know what it is. I have not been the same since. I see the world in a different way because of him, him playing that song. Isn't that amazing how music can do that to us? I want to close it out with another solo song of his. This is a lot of love to give for, um, from the For the Beauty of Winona album. Thank you, Daniel, for talking with me. I mean, that was incredible right? I am so excited to see what else uh, comes from him. And I have to say, last year, I felt very strongly like Andy Ross's The Fear Engine was the perfect album for that period in our history, because it was talking about a lot of the fear and the tension that we're dealing with at that time in our history. Things are a little better now, at least in America, they're a little bit better. And so I feel like Heavy Sun is the album for this period 
of our lives. Check it out. Um, I'm not exactly sure what we're going to go with next week. I think it's going to be a uh, sort of an 80s movie soundtrack icon. Um, I'm not 100% sure. It might be somebody else, but I think that's what we have in store next week. Huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do. And you guys know how to find us by now. You can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Uh, we should have a bonus episode coming out this week. I, it, again, I'm not 100% sure it's what it's going to be. Maybe a deep dive. Maybe a promo mode. Both of these are with pretty big time people. So I think you're going to enjoy it either way. But anyway, that's the deal. Thank you, everybody. We love you. July, you said to me.